welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Tara Lynn. Last month, the Public School Forum of North Carolina, along with the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity and the Policy Bridge at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, hosted their second annual Color of Education Summit, which focused on racial equity and education in North Carolina. Today, we are going to talk with representatives from two of the Color of Education partner organizations about the summit and the work that is to come. We will also hear from leaders from two groups that presented at this year's Color of Education Summit about their racial equity work in schools and communities. Now, before that, we will tackle our main topics. We open with headlines, our quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. State lawmakers passed a bill on Halloween that offers teachers a 3.9% raise over two years and would be retroactive to July 1st of 2019 if the governor signs the measure. Now, nearly all Democrats in the General Assembly opposed the bill because they considered the raises inadequate. The proposal also included language that would have given teachers a higher raise if the Democrats agreed to override the governor's veto of the budget bill that passed earlier this year. But the General Assembly adjourned without voting on a veto override. Eight out of 10 teenagers say that vaping is a part of their everyday lives. That's according to a new poll by Common Sense Media. Even if they don't use e-cigarettes, the teens say that they are inundated with vaping messages on social media or watching their peers vape. This information comes on the heels of a significant spike in vaping-related illnesses and North Carolina's Attorney General having recently filed a lawsuit alleging that eight e-cigarette companies are aggressively targeting children and do not require appropriate age verification when selling their products. A new report from the nonpartisan law enforcement organization Fight Crime Invest in Kids found that the hours immediately following the end of the school day are the likeliest for young people in North Carolina to be involved in criminal activity. Juvenile crime peaks from 2 to 6 p.m. on school days with about 29 percent of all juvenile crime on those days occurring during the hours just after the last school bell. The report's authors say that it is critical to invest in high-quality after-school programs in order to put North Carolina's kids on the right track for success in life. Now, remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org. Click Education Matters and read more about each of the headlines as well as other topics that we cover each week. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to hear from leaders of local organizations that are doing racial equity work in schools and communities in North Carolina. First, I want to introduce you to two key organizers for this year's Color of Education Summit. We have Patience Wall, a member of the Guiding Committee for Color Education, as well as Ashley Kazoo, a policy analyst with the Public School Forum of North Carolina. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Well, Patience, I'm going to start with you. Tell us, what is the Color of Education? Yes. So Color of Education is a partnership between Duke University, that being the Sanford School of Public Policy through Policy Bridge, and the Cook Center on Social Equity, and the Public School Forum of North Carolina. And what our goal is, is for us to improve racial equity in North Carolina schools. What we want to see and what we envision is schools where children can thrive, where they feel included, and we want to focus on historically underrepresented 
racial identities. Um, what we really are trying to do is bring together research, policy, and practice and reinforce those partnerships in order to bring about that type of change. And the conference, Color of Education, our October summit is our way at getting at that and reinforcing those partnerships and relationships. And it's been great because we've been able to work with um, our partnered organization representatives such as Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards and Dr. William Sandy Darity, in addition to folks like Ashley Kazoo and Lauren Fox at the Public School Forum of North Carolina. And Ashley, tell me, I know last year you it was a, a one night event this time uh, this year it expanded tell us a little bit about what was new and and the growth so this year was a totally new event like you said last year was a one night event this year we wanted to make it a full day summit full of workshops and panels from local leaders and organizations who are doing this work on the ground and so we wanted to be a place where we could bring together bring together people for a convening so that they could take instead of just listening to someone talk about these issues we could have them together so that they can learn from one another and take the dialogue from those critical conversations and make them into action-oriented practices that they could take back into their schools and their organizations and maybe even to state level policymakers. And so who are some of these people that, were, that are attending the summit? So there are going to be K-12 educators, a lot of state policymakers. We also had researchers like from Duke and Sanford School and the Cook Center. We had some nonprofit leaders. Um, also, we had some students who were there who mm -hmm. were on panels and who were just involved. And so those were the main folks that we had in there, and we were excited to have them. And of course, you know, all the people involved ultimately from the, like you said, the policymakers to the teachers who are going to be implementing to the students affected by it. Um, Patience, will you tell us some of, the, some of the topics that they were able to discuss in these breakout sessions? Yes, we had 14 breakout sessions, so I'm going to try to highlight some of them. If, <laughs> if, if I miss out on some of them, I hope um, the presenters will forgive me. Um, we had sessions trying to figure, feature a lot of the things that we've been talking about over the last year and a half of the partnership. Um, the, one of the most prominent things we said we want to get at was teacher diversity. I believe WRAL, you guys did a segment on that um, in the past year. Um, so we had the UNC Graduate School of Education present like a, a, a session on teacher diversity, how we can improve like a representation among our teachers within the classroom. We had sessions on gender and race, make, really making sure that we highlight how does racial disparities look for um, historically marginalized gender identities. And we also featured sessions, again, with some of the presenters I think you'll have on later who will be speaking about how you evaluate the school climate and culture. Um, that's Village of Wisdom. We had anti-racist education from groups like We Are. And also just really thinking about how can um, social enterprise, social, um, social impact organizations think about social justice as well from groups like DEI Works Collective. And I know one of the panels, of course, uh, working with the policy makers, and that was something that you uh, were able to be uh, a moderator for. And uh, what were some of the takeaways that that stood out to you from that session? So that panel was really great because we were able to have state level leaders and policymakers from senators and representatives. And we also had the local level from the school board members. So a couple of the key takeaways were that um, a lot of the school board members were really saying that we really need to have a lot of involvement from parents and going to a state level policymaker and showing them and telling them what exactly are schools needing. And one of those things that they were highlighting and what, that the state could eventually have some type of control over or mm -hmm. impact on is the school funding and having more equitable school funding for schools in the rural areas, for schools in the low economic, um, socioeconomic areas and those things so that students can have the equal op educational opportunities that they need to be successful later in life. And then a third thing that I think was really important for everyone to say, the state level leaders and local leaders, was that we need a change in mindset from everyone because everyone need, we all have an invested interest in our own children, but we need to start thinking about things and the fact that we need an invested interest in all children, children that we may not see every day, but we understand that they're not having the same 
level of opportunities and educational advancement that some of our other students are getting. And we want all of our students to be successful. And that mindset could transform into some really great policies that can make education and public education better for all students in North Carolina. And I know uh, you guys were able to have, um, you had some great speakers, uh, you know, last year. And one of the uh, speakers you had this year, you had uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, so a fa famous author, preeminent mm -hmm. voice on race and racism in America. You also had Ali Michael, a researcher, writer, speaker. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, their, their, what they were able to bring to the table and, and if anything surprised you about maybe what they had to say. Yes, um, we try to think long and hard about how we can really like lay the groundwork for future conferences and uh, a topic that was very key for us to kind of say this is what we want to tackle first is basically just racial trauma, making sure we all have a consistent understanding of what um, the history of racism looks like in the United States. So that's Ta-Nehisi Coates was able to present that, of course. And then um, Allie Michael was able to speak to really just whiteness and how whiteness operates within our, our school systems and how we can learn how to, to counter that whiteness. So I really think that they both did a great job as talking to like what what are the issues that really underpin all the things that we're seeing in school and within society. And then I think we can be able to, again, move forward from that to talk about other things in years conferences coming forward. And what do we think is, is coming next for Color of Education? So that's really exciting. So our partners and the forum, we're really excited because we have a couple of things coming out. One is going to be the mapping the movement for racial equity across North Carolina. And so that is a map that is going to be visible on the Color of Education website. And you can go on there and you can see other organizations that are really engaging in racial equity work addressing racial inequities in education. And so we wanted this, this map to be available for resources because there are a lot of, like we said, grounds organ, ground organizations on the ground mm -hmm. that are doing this work. And we want them to be visible so that they're not in silos doing this work, but they're able to share and engage with other people who are also interested in providing racial equity tools for schools and parents and people to just push for those things. Another thing that um, was announced at Color of Ed and we're really excited about is the Dudley Flood um, Center for Educational Opportunities, um, um, excuse me, Equitable Educational Opportunities mm -hmm. across North Carolina. And so that's a new project that we're working on. So right now we're working on that and developing it into something that can be a space where we can have research and um, and uh, practices around racial equity in education. And we've got about one more minute. So if someone hears about this and they're like, oh, I didn't know that this was, you know, an opportunity. How does somebody um, get a ticket or get a seat to be <laughs> in the room next year? Well, I would say go to colorofeducation.com.org, colorofeducation.org, and look, this is a Get Involved section. You can join our listserv um, and, and receive emails from us mm -hmm. from going through the website and going to that page. Um, also, I, Ashley and I like to think that we are researchers as well, so if you see our email or you see us out in public, like please come up and say hi. Mm -hmm. That friendly hello will be lasting <laughs> until you had to connect. Um, so yes, colorofeducation.org. All right. Yes. Well, and I'm sure you know you expanded from a one night event to a full day. So um, I'm sure there are even probably bigger, better things um, along the way. So yes. thank you, yes. ladies, for thank being you. with us. Thank, thank you. you. All right. After a brief commercial break, we will be back to continue our discussion with leaders from two groups doing racial equity work in schools and communities. First, see if you can answer this question. White students in North Carolina are how many times as likely as both black and Hispanic students to be enrolled in at least one advanced placement, also known as AP class? See if you have the right answer. Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Paragon Bank, serving others, enriching lives. 
welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer D, white students are 2.6 times more likely as both black and Hispanic students to be enrolled in at least one advanced placement class. This information is based on civil rights data released by the U.S. Department of Education and published by ProPublica, which built an interactive database to examine racial disparities in educational opportunities in, as well as school discipline. All right, joining us now, we have Dr. Will Jackson, who leads the organization, The Village of Wisdom, which also works to transform schools into equitable learning environments, as well as Aliyah Abdur Rockman, founder and collaborator of DEI Works, which supports organizations in using equity as a tool to transfer power to marginalized communities. We thank you guys both so much for joining us. And I should say William P. Jackson. Um, I know you go by Will, but I love that um, your, is it your official or unofficial title as Chief Dreamer? I would say unofficial. I'm, I'm basically the executive director, but we like to have some fun with the names. Yes, yes, well, I, I absolutely love it. Thank you guys for coming to the show. Now, Will, I know that your organization, Village of Wisdom, it's based in Durham, works with educators and communities to help transform schools um, into more equitable learning environments. How mm -hmm. did your group come to be? And uh, tell me a little bit about what that day-to-day -day work looks like. Yeah, so um, I was, I'm a former teacher, and so I spent some time um, teaching, and then after being in school, I was actually consulting with a, a, a firm called Frontline Solutions around boys and men of color work. And I was really kind of blown away by the fact that there were so many people who were working with kids of color, and they weren't talking about the fact that they were children of color, right? Like, the reason why they have disparate outcomes is because they're dealing with race and racism inside of this country. And so a lot of what Village of Wisdom was born out of was me seeking to find solutions that helped um, black children deal with the fact that folks were, were treating them differently because of their skin color, mm -hmm. right? And so what does it mean to provide children with the ability to kind of deal with the fact that you're going to experience discrimination? Um, and so we did that work for a while. I um, mean, we worked with parents to do that work. Um, but then we really transitioned to this idea of like, we shouldn't just be working with parents and kids to prepare them to experience discrimination in schools. What does it look like to work with parents and kids to eliminate discrimination in schools? Um, and so a lot of our day-to-day -day work has now turned to trying to assess the impact of cultural differences and unconscious mm -hmm. bias on the learning of kids inside of the classroom. So one of our measures one of the things that people do is like the science behind and the psychometrics mm -hmm. behind like validating those metrics um, or validating those assessments. We also have folks who work with parents kind of on, uh, I guess, bi-monthly basis doing these parent workshops with folks. And then we also work with school leaders. So there's a lot of good school leaders inside of this state who really want to address these racial equity issues and are doing really difficult work inside of their schools. And we're trying to help them with that work as mm -hmm. they pursue it. And Ali, I know with your group, DEI Works, it's a statewide organization. Um, and you guys are working with some of those community-based organizations on to really look at how the social entrepreneurship um, can be a leveler for social justice. Tell me a little bit about this strategy. Sure, sure. So DEI Works Collective is founded by black women. It's a collective where we try to think as, you know, around how do we use equity as a tool to transfer power. And we actually work at a national level. Mm -hmm. um, but my 
strategy around innovation for liberation really came out of my community activism roots in East Durham, where Will and I both live, um, as well as my research that I'm doing as part of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship um, at Fuqua. So asking that question, can social justice or can social entrepreneurship be a lever for social justice? And so the Innovation um, for Liberation platform and we're doing this now in education because mm -hmm. that's where my background is. That's what I've done for about 10 years. Um, it's really a strategy to bring about um, different groups of folks around a central idea. Um, and what we're doing is bringing organizations um, that have some sort of social mission. Um, we're bringing activists, entrepreneurs like Will, whose theory of change is rooted in transferring power. And we're also bringing um, marginalized communities that have a vision for how they want to dismantle uh, structures of inequity and really want to move from being tokens to self-mobilize. And so, it's say, how would you how would you describe an, a, a social entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I, I call them activist entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and so. Village of Wisdom, for example, actually has a product or service that they're offering, mm -hmm. right, that is really centered on how do we transfer power back to those folks who are marginalized, right? And so it's not just the activism part, which is important, it has its place, but it's also saying, like, what's the tool, right, that we're going to use to really take action? Um, so that's, that's what we're doing. And I know uh, you had talked about uh, some of those tools with the Village of Wisdom and what mm -hmm. you guys are able to do. Um, explain what culturally responsive practices are and what some of those tools you think are, are going to be most valuable for people to put into practice. Yeah, so culturally responsive practices, or this term culturally responsive, comes from Gloria Ladson Villain's work. Um, so it's a black woman who wrote an article back in 1996 after following some teachers around uh, who were identified as like the greatest teachers in their neighborhoods um, in California. And so essentially she said that when we want to be culturally responsive to students, it requires us to know who the students are, to pull that information into the classroom and to also direct that student's attention and their energy towards social justice issues, right? So when these teachers who were really captivating like the students' minds and hearts inside of these classrooms, they were pushing them to think about why there were so many liquor stores in their neighborhoods and why weren't there any grocery stores, mm -hmm. right? So real social issues and having them think that that's what their project was on. Like, mm -hmm. let us understand the dynamics between that because that puts our, especially black and brown children who frequently feel the most amount of pressure under oppression, uh, the ability to kind of get in the driver's seat and like have this agency okay. that people are always mm -hmm. talking about. Um, and so that's what I would say about those practices and kind of what it is, I guess, all in one. And I, I know you like to be able to empower those students to think of themselves as change agents, agents of change. Um, how would, you know, how do you do that from, from the young age of maybe when they're first entering school and all the yeah. way up? Yeah, I mean, so Will talked about this a little bit. Like, you know what's impacting your community mm -hmm. and what's happening around you. And we really wanted to ask the question, like, what, what's the purpose of school, right? And so right now, it really is about economic mobility, right? To be able to provide for yourself right. and your family. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need that. But for marginalized communities, that's not enough, right? And so we actually need those students to be thinking about what are the issues and the challenges that are impacting my community. You know, I'm not just going to college or doing whatever and, you know, empowering my life, but I'm actually looking back and saying what are some of the things that we need to change. And so when we envision social change agents, we envision like Little Miss Flint, um, the March for Our Lives students. Um, Greta Thornburg, you know? So what would school look like if we were actually giving students the tools to be those sort of social change agents? 
And Will, from your vantage point working in schools, uh, when we say, how do we know we've achieved equity? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Yeah, I mean, I think actually when we think about this, we might have to change our frame a little bit. So, so one, equity and liberation, we talk a lot about liberation, mm -hmm. like this idea of everybody being free and having self-determination. It's a journey, mm -hmm. right? Like every day um, you're probably leaning into some kind of unconscious bias that you learn from our society and our system because our system and our society has been built on these biases, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know that for 400 years we have given one set a uh, group of people the same kind of more resources than anybody else, right? And if you don't look like a white man, then you don't get those same resources. And so it's gonna take us a long time to unlearn that, right? And so what does equity start to look like inside of schools? Well, one of the things that we look at is we have a student perspective survey and we literally ask students like, is your interest being fed while you're learning? Do you feel like your racial identity is being affirmed? Because a lot of times what we'll see is like, well, they're going to do a unit on history in the United States. So we're going to talk about all the presidents. So what happens there, right? Like, I don't see myself represented in those presidents, right? Like, I get Barack Obama, I get one. If I'm a leader, I never see myself represented, mm -hmm. right? So like, what does it look like to switch that environment to where, yes, and, and so you have to do this extra work to do that because our society and system has kind of pushed us into a place that where the people who most frequently get represented inside of schools are folks that don't look like black and brown kids. And then we ask black and brown kids to take on that burden and to figure out how to see themselves in a version of them that doesn't look like them at all. And then meanwhile, when the kids that are represented look really well or do really well on testing, we're like, oh, they're so smart. So, I mean, I, I think we all have a journey to kind of go on. But eventually, when we get to this place where a student can really lean into their passion and they can find their purpose inside of a classroom and they don't have to feel like they're being subjugated or they have to code switch or do whatever to experience that in the classroom, but they could just be themselves and they can show up as their full self without being controlled with all this like hairstyle policing or all these various things, when that stuff is not there and kids can kind of lean into that, then I think we're getting closer to equity. We are out of time. Um, I know, I'm sure we could talk about yeah. this for a lot longer, yeah. but uh, great that we have forums and opportunities and that these conversations are having happening in our community. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. After this break, we will have this week's final word. To close out our show this week, we would like to share highlights from the Color of Education 2019, which was produced in collaboration with Education NC, one of our key supporters. I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2019 Color of Education Summit. We're really grateful for you spending your Saturday to join us for hard and critical conversations on race and education in North Carolina. 85% of the teachers in the U.S. are white and more than that of our administrators are white and most of our policymakers, curriculum writers, social workers, psychologists and therapists are white. Over half of students that are being suspended are black. Eighth grade, we desegregated in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Okay. I realized, one, I was black. <laughs> I realized I was black and different and I saw fewer black teachers. Being black in a small town, everything in my life depended upon my education. I learned compliance at eight. I knew by fifth grade that my smart white counterparts were not given the same instruction. A lot of teachers don't see racism in our schools and how that impacts not only their practice, but impacts our students. The fact of the matter is, 
their uneven starts. We have the most children, the most poverty, but we are not intentional about what we're doing. So we're in this place today because the buck stops with us. Oftentimes we talk about equity, but we're afraid to get into conversations about race. These conversations, they're necessary, but oftentimes we don't have the skills or tools to actually have them in meaningful ways. And if you've been socialized to be colorblind, the thing that you do the most is to avoid those conversations. And when people are here in this space, that they can say, look, I have an ally, a comrade, a co-conspirator, so that we can make these changes happen. We reframe the question from how can you reduce suspensions to how can you keep your most challenging kids in high-quality learning environments more of the time? I've never not worked at this. Um, it was my job 50 years ago, but it was also my predilection. And uh, if you ever can reach the point that you see things that people never thought possible occurring, that's pretty gratifying. <laughs> we want to go forward, but we want to go forward recognizing that uh, it can be done. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week.